Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Angel Stager, Director of Product Design at Facebook. In this episode, we talked about what it's like designing a building for over 2.7 billion users, how focusing on activation can increase retention, and how giving users a feeling of ownership had a big impact on Pinterest user activation. We also discussed qualitative research at Pinterest and how a bad hookup face helped increase their messaging response rate. We also looked at how Dropbox and Pinterest use internal experimentation systems to help avoid bad user experiences. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode. And if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Angel. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you today. For the listeners, Angel is the Director of Product Design at Facebook. Angel actually started a career as an architect and made the switch when she was asked the question, how would you like to work on a product that has 100 million users? I think this question helped her quickly realize that she'll never have the opportunity to build a building that big. Prior to Facebook, Angel was the Director of Product Design at Dropbox, working with the customer growth and business platform groups. And prior to that, she was a product design lead for multiple cross-functional growth teams at Pinterest. So my first question for you, Angel, is what's it like designing a building for a 2.7 billion plus users? <laughs> Humbling. <laughs> <laughs> you will never know everything. So you always have to be in inquiry and curious and very attentive to the data. To the data. I found it fascinating reading on uh, your LinkedIn profile that this was the question that you got asked and making the switch. Like, um and also interested in the parallels between the two. Obviously, it was early on in your career, you decided to make the switch from architecture to design and moving into product design. But maybe talk us a little bit through that mindset as well and that question that was probed to you. How did it drive you into the career that you are today? Yeah, so at the time, I was working at an art gallery in San Francisco, and I was meeting with some friends of mine who had a self-funded startup. And so we were both really starving, fine arts and self-funded and so we would meet in Chinatown yeah. and have the world's dirtiest dim sum, the cheapest dim sum, the kind where if it just goes cold, you like let it go. You don't try to eat it again. <laughs> and But they got purchased actually by Rupert Murdoch. And so they were like, hey, we know you do uh, physical design. Have you ever thought about this digital design thing? And by the way, what do you think about working on a product that has 100 million users? Um, and this was MySpace at the time at the height of their fame. 
Wow. And uh, they didn't create MySpace. They created a company, a news aggregation company called Nuru that was purchased to integrate with MySpace. And I was floored. <laughs> As a designer of physical things, you just never think of numbers like that. And it, I had never thought about tech that way either. It's just a tool that I used. And suddenly it was this thing that enabled you to deliver services and capabilities at this tremendous scale. And when you think about what you create and the impact of what you create, it's mind-boggling that we can reach that many people and, and hopefully do well by them, not hurt them, but deliver new empowerment. And, and so, that, exactly, value. And so, yeah, I learned a lot on the job. Thank you, nepotism. I didn't have a lot of experience. I had got fired from my job for sassing my boss and used my severance pay to purchase books on HTML and CSS. And so taught myself to code, built a really crappy initial website, and by virtue of nepotism was hired and had to develop a pitch for why my architecture skills were relevant. <laughs> what I said, which at first I, I built out this matrix of talking points, and then eventually over time I realized that what I thought was bullshit actually was reasonably <laughs> valid, yeah. which was... Number one, architecture is this incredibly complex paradox. What is a building? Is it the walls? Is it the holes? Is it the way that people are choreographed through the walls and the holes? The answer is yes, all of it. And I think if you look at an app, it's the same thing, right? Like your app isn't the UI. Yeah. It isn't. It, it might be like what people do with the UI, but it's also how people interact with each other across it. Architecture is one of those fields where you have to think at multiple scales. You think about the city, the street, the human body. You think about multiplayer. You think about how it evolves over years. And if you work on platform, it's very much the same. You have to think about where do you think you might be going? What are the possible futures that you might want to explore? And how do you make calculated guesses <laughs> uh, to determine what kind of foundation you build for those types of things. And, and that actually has served me pretty well because my training basically got me to think about multi-year very early on. And then as I became a product manager, and then when I went back into design, I could make intelligent platform decisions that would save us like millions of dollars. It, yeah. it definitely pays off. I, I think everyone from tech comes from a few different places typically, and there's so many different ways to translate skills. Absolutely. And I love the, the parallel in it as well. Like I could just, as well as asking the question, I could just start visualizing in my mind how the similarities between a building and actually an app uh, and the way you just described it now as well, just visualize it more in my mind now. Uh, next time I walk into difference. a building, I'm going to see it. <laughs> <an app. laughs> the one critical difference is that it's a lot less expensive to change software. If you want to iterate, Iterating yeah. on a building is really not a good idea. I remember studying a few architects in school who did it and they made maybe three buildings or two buildings in their lifetime because their clients were like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's the, obviously the biggest thing I think you mentioned was the scale and the ability to iterate and test uh, really quickly. And uh, maybe that's also a good segue uh, into uh, another topic as well that I was interested in is mentioned earlier that you uh, were working and leading design for a couple of cross-functional growth teams at Pinterest. And I know obviously Pinterest in the early days, like retention being one of the big and main metrics uh, that they focus on, if anything, the main metric, but mm -hmm. probably still at a time where 
there wasn't a million blog posts on the topic. There wasn't a million experiments that had been run and a hundred different podcasts talking about the topic. So I'm interested to hear from your side, what was it like at that time going into a company like Pinterest where retention was central to the business's success and working in design? What were some of the things that you were working on in those early days and where were you seeking and getting inspiration from? Yeah, great question. I joined when we were at 450 people and I think maybe just under 100 million users. And it was as part of, I joined a team that was already fairly established in growth. Some very well-known people, Casey Winters, John Egan, who are regularly right about growth. And already we had a culture set up where we were every week reviewing What are we learning about the customer base, about our users, about what types of interactions really work? The teams that we had at the time were uh, activation, virality, and I think that I think we started with basically two teams. And initially, like if you if you listen to the naming of those teams, we're really focusing on initial, (laughs) like officially activating people. And then making sure that we had reach because Pinterest is not technically a social network and so actually is not a viral product inherently. And so we're very concerned about growth and reach. We then started to branch out into things like resurrection as well as ongoing user state health and engagement and notifications. And the primary thing we were really focusing on was activation and why does that relate to retention? If you, if you never activate people to begin with, you have no hope of retaining them. And yeah. when you think about, we used relationship analogies a lot, which I think is useful because you can get very fancy and very theoretical about things, but really all you're doing is building a relationship with the customer. And when you think about a, a romantic relationship, if you were like, hey, how do I avoid a breakup? Or how do I get back together with my ex? Like the, I think the worst is like resurrection, right? Like how do I get back together with my ex? Yeah. Is like, so the answer is like never break up in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so then, then obviously you pull that thread and you're like, oh, clearly we need to focus higher up the chain. Let's look at healthy state retention. And yeah. so if you're like, okay, let's make sure that people are engaged. And you're like, actually, if the right way to make sure that people are engaged is to take advantage of them and they have that day zero catalytic energy, right? Like when someone just starts to engage with your product, they're super excited. They're curious. Like this is the most energy they'll ever have to invest in you. And so you have this like special window to engage them, give them value as quickly as possible so that they're like, that was good. I want more. And that really happens in activation. I'm loving the analogies today. (laughs) First is all like with the parallels between architecture uh, and building ups and now breakups and activation and resurrection, I think. And it makes perfect sense and it's a great way to describe it. I think trying to save a relationship after you've already broken up and resurrecting it is like almost a lost cause. And we know that from past experience and many others. But if you spend the time (laughs) in... (laughs) If you spend the time in the beginning of that relationship to do things like you say, like when things are still exciting and asking the right questions, getting to know your partner, like making sure that there's alignment in the value prop that you're both bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. I think uh, ultimately you're going to set yourself up for a successful relationship, having those conversations like early on, making sure that you focusing on activating that relationship. And it's the same thing with your product and your customers. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one the one distinction I will make is that reactivation is much harder in a real relationship 
than it is in a virtual relationship, assuming you haven't burned the customer. If the customer never really understood your product to begin with, there is a chance that you might have another pass at them, especially if you have a a company like Pinterest, which the primary uh, driver of traffic is SEO, like the next search that yields a Pinterest result, like you might have another swing at it. But yeah, in a relationship, if you start... There's the, not many surprises at the end of that. Someone's, what have you done for me lately? Answer yeah. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let's go a little bit deeper then as well at your time at Pinterest and specifically as a product designer there, working within with these growth teams. And you mentioned, let's take activation and area of focus where each week you would get into these meetings, share learnings that you have about your customers and experiments and things that you're running. But As a product designer specifically, like thinking about activation in mind, what was your process looking like in all of this within the growth team? What is the role that you were playing, obviously, besides the obvious of designing the experience, but how were you conducting research? How were you working with the team to make sure they were sharing these learnings? And like, how did that look? Yeah, first, I will say that regardless of function, everyone was a shared owner in making sure that we were successful. We had designed catchphrases for what we were after. And we would uh, say those at every single meeting, X number of mouths or X number of whatever. And it, it was the metric. The other thing that we would talk about affiliated with the metric was like, what were the key indicators that someone was getting value? I won't, I won't share what those are, but it was like this set of behaviors in this t- set of time frame, And you can gamify that a little bit and mistake that. But the important thing to always keep in mind and that we always t- kept in mind was that the metrics is a proxy for what you're after. What we're after is activation. The metric is a proxy for activation. And regardless, uh, and and making sure we had a holdout group too. So if we we game the metric, it would start to reveal itself. So one was just as part of a designer, as part of the cross-functional team, like absolutely understanding like what signals do we have that someone is actually getting that value as quickly as possible. And on the design and design research side, qualitatively understanding what is the critical thing that people need to go through? What are the critical things that people need to understand about the product in order to get value? And so in the case of Pinterest, Pinterest is a app that helps people find ideas. And the sign that someone is healthy finding ideas is they like find one, (laughs) find an idea that they save it within a certain period of time. And I should highlight also, by the way, that I was like not on the activation team at the time. So I'm technically representing the work of uh, Scott Tong and uh, Casey Winters. We were a small crew. We talked a lot and their work was very educational for me. And so we made sure that they got that value. And some of the things that we looked at in terms of experimentation was like, how much of this is stuff that we can really guide the user through versus how much of it do they need to actually create themselves? So I I call it the Betty Crocker principle. Betty Crocker, um, if this is a US product, by the way, in case it's a global audience, Betty Crocker is like a cake mix and you get to make a a nice cake, but you don't have to measure all the ingredients yourself. And Betty Crocker had an interesting thing where in theory, like everything in the cake could just be put in the box. Like an egg could be powdered, everything could be a powder, and then you just add some butter or some milk or, or some water and bake it and then you have a cake. And what, what they saw from that research was that when, when people just added water to the box of powder, people didn't really feel like they were, quote, baking. And so they weren't invested. And that is the same thing was true for, for Pinterest, where we when people created a board, 
we saw that if we automatically gave the board a name, that actually took the sense of creation away from them in that sense of personal investment. And we can suggest board names, but the, the person actually has to choose what the name of the board is in order for them to successfully activate because of that. There's sh mental shifts that have to happen where people actually decide that they're invested and actually the, the naming is a significant moment. And would you understand that from the data? Like maybe not. And really depending on how you measure, if you weren't careful, you could run an experiment with maybe you're like, oh, like we have leading indicators looks good. And then you don't maybe see like the long tail effects of what that looks like because you've given into your proxies versus the, the holdout group. I think that was a really interesting thing, especially just for me as a designer to understand that there are things that occur in your interfaces that create internal shifts for the customer. And you have to be cognizant of what those functional and emotional moments are so that you can choreograph them intelligently. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And like you said as well, from the data, you only get half the story. Like really having that qualitative and quantitative view helps you understand it. And I, like obviously, I think Casey Winners uh, himself as well, working with Brian Belfer on the mm -hmm. and Sean Klaus on the Reforge materials, which is something they talk about quite a lot. For the listeners, if you haven't heard of Reforge as well, uh, it's a really fantastic higher level education courses that they do. And they do have a good course on retention and engagement. But something as well they talk a lot about is like making sure you have that good balance between the qualitative and quantitative and sometimes using those uh, quantitative data to inform what the qualitative research is you're going to be wanting to do to understand and really get the why behind the what that you're seeing. Let's go a little bit more into this as well then because it's really interesting uh, like a, and I love the analogy, analogy of the baking in a box. When you're going out about trying to figure out the sort of moments in the user journey and really trying to dig into sort of those moments where they like getting that stored value, that feeling of ownership or uh, where they're getting their sort of first win within the product. Like, how are you conducting these, this qualitative research? Is it interviews? Is it focus groups? What are the ways that you, you were doing this of interest? Uh, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of methodologies that you use and like it's useful to use them in concert. First off was actually like metrics, looking at the data and then I think if you want to understand whether or not something is going to sit well with customers, like sometimes you can have experiences that perform well metrically that actually don't really don't leave people with a good feeling. And again, going back to what we discussed earlier, it's about a relationship and whether or not your business model is based on engagement and ad revenue or a subscription service model you always want a relationship where the product value they're getting out of something is greater than whatever economic or eyeball value they're putting in. And, and sometimes that can be hard to measure again, because a lot on growth, we optimize for, we want to run experiments quickly. And you look at your leading indicators, and then you try to shorten to the shortest measurable time window so that you can make a call and either ship or shut down um, pretty quickly. And sometimes you miss what is happening to your relationship with the customer uh, if you only look at the metrics. And one of the better ways, there's a lot of ways to measure your customer relationship. There's you know, NPS, there's the would you be disappointed if you didn't have it score. Faster, I think, actually, is qualitative research. 
And I know that's a, it's expensive. It's a luxury that not everyone has, though you can get crafty with them. Guerrilla DIY research. And one example I will give is when I was working on revamping the sharing flow. So over my tenure at Pinterest, I think I like eight or 11 X the sharing flow, the sharing rate. And one of the things that we saw initially when we redid sharing was performance wise, like our first experiment, three X the sharing rate, which is crazy. <laughs> tells you like how bad the first wow. experience was. Yeah. Like it's not, oh, I'm so amazing. It's more just, ooh, it was rough before. And when we took it to qual, so we had optimized for speed. And so we made it really easy to pop up people that you knew, tap them, immediately share content with them. And when we took it to qual, what we saw, and this is like, I'll tell you, it was like body language, a little bit of what people said, but like first it was their body language, which I would describe as a bad hookup face, which was like, what? That's over already. And what happened was we had optimized for sending really quickly, but that is, was a fundamentally incorrect hypothesis that speed was the most important thing. We know that the people who were likely to share were the closest um, people in someone's network, your friends, your family, your besties, your children. And a lot of times when you have relationships that close, you don't actually need a lot of context because you're sitting right next to each other on the couch. You're always in communication. Bad hookup face. They looked surprised at how fast the experience was. And so we dug into it a little bit and realized that when you're sharing an idea, there's a lot of different it, most pins are based on images. And so when you're sharing something that looks like an image, there's an image has infinite amounts of content in it. And within an image might be, you might look at an image of an, a living room and you might be trying to have a conversation about a chair in that living room being like, wow, wouldn't this chair look great for our house? And they need the ability to set that context. And we wouldn't have known that without having talked to the customer and that was really important because we wanted people to send messaging within Pinterest because if they send via Pinterest, then we have their um, contact information, we have their email address, we can resend, we can have additional ways of reaching out to the recipient to engage them versus if they send via an external sharing platform, we just don't really know that much about what happens. Like you, you could maybe track the link, but that's about it. And we learned that people actually really emotionally needed this additional step to feel confident setting the right context for the recipient. And we added the ability to include a personal message, which literally doubled the amount of steps that it took to share content. Yeah. But what happened was the metrics went down slightly, but the response rate went up, which is when you're working on sharing and virality, it's not about just lobbing information over a wall. You're, it's a cycle, right? Like the value cycle of sharing something is to get a response. No one likes sharing to avoid. That's not fun. Nobody talks to a wall. And doing the right thing by the customer, understanding their emotional context, their expectations, made them feel more safe sending, also made it more successful for the recipient to have context to be able to successfully respond. And we would have never learned that if we had just looked at the numbers. We probably would have like high-fived each other and gone home. Yeah, I love that as well. It's like you see you run an experiment, it's a win. And like you say, normally we just high-five yourself and go home. But really spending the time to actually measure that, not just from a quantitative perspective, but from a qualitative perspective. Had you 
improve the experience for the user or if you just made something a little bit more faster and almost in a way like vanity metrics, but in this case, probably they did have yeah. some value on its own, uh, but just really and understanding then, that points like double that value that you got out of it. Yeah, there's one more point that I would like to emphasize about that, which is we saw it in their body language that it was not a good experience for them. Like it was unsettling. And what that told me was that even if we had initial lift, it would not be sustained because it wasn't a good experience for them. And people don't repeat experiences that aren't good. Like we probably would have seen initial lift and then it would have gone down because people are like, you know what, actually, yuck, I would rather just share link. And then we've lost that remessaging capability. Absolutely. I think this is also one of the misleading things sometimes with experimentation as well is like you say, you could have uh, initially a win and what looks like to be a win, but slowly over time, the experience that you've created uh, might've just been easier at that point, but from a actual end user experience was not ideal or great. Just yeah. And then tying it back to the long-term relationship, imagine it's not just my team experimenting on virality. Imagine many teams across the company are experimenting like this. When you shave the quality of the experience that way, then you have the customer experiencing many disappointing, unsettling, untrustworthy experiences. And then that becomes your narrative with the customer. That becomes how they remember the relationship and brand trust is one of the hardest things to recuperate from if you damage it. So it is, it is a precious asset and people, people remember you when they feel like you're on your, you're on their side. Like. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, this thing maybe goes back to the beginning of the conversation as well about building the building and thinking a little bit long-term and uh, taking into consideration all the different aspects of the building that you have and, that it has to be a coherent, good experience throughout as well. Having a building that's got shitty toilets that are broken and leaving a wrenching smell, but the rest of the building looks pretty in the front (laughs) is not going to create a good experience for the homeowner, for the person who's working in that building. But likewise, like having that vision to understand like how this is obviously a, a big challenge. I think many organizations face as they scale experimentation and how like maybe a Dropbox or Pinterest or even a Facebook, are they dealing with this as a whole like, to make sure that the experience is across the board, like coherent, and they're not just over-optimizing for metrics and then ruining the overall experience? Like how is this something that you avoided in your career? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's always an aspiration. And I don't think you know, we ever fully avoid as much as we would like. I think there's a few things. One is having a design systems team and design systems components really helps just because there's a bunch of standards that are built in. I think that is also true with platform thinking in general. So both at um, at Pinterest and at Dropbox, one of the things that I worked on was, for example, for experimentation, what should be the default set of behaviors for something like a pop-up modal dialogue? If we want to surface a new feature or something to you, like how should that behave? And different teams have different levels of experimentation expertise, right? Like some growth teams will be very into the user behavior, really into the user mindset, assuming it's a mature and healthy growth team. Not every product team is necessarily that facile with data and or that facile with experimentation. Some teams tend to work on like longer term feature sets. And then when they run, want to run experiments can be like a little um, naive and it's not because people are trying to do the wrong thing. It's like the absence of knowledge. And when you have a system and, and both Pinterest and Dropbox have um, internal systems that 
enable you to launch experiments, you can say, what are the right defaults? Because everyone at your company will typically use the default. If you make the default a healthy default that from the data and from customer feedback is healthy, you can instill that default so that, for example, if someone gets a pop-up to learn about a feature, that when they dismiss that, it doesn't just immediately come back the next time they visit that page. You're like, I said, no means no. Stop. Don't create this zombie experience that keeps coming back to life. Listen to my feedback. I said I wasn't interested. I closed the box. I clicked or I scrolled away. There's passive and active dismissals. And that involves a cool down period and then a limited number of exposures. Like having intelligent defaults. And this was work that wasn't scoped. This was just work that I decided that we needed to do because it's not just bad for the customer, it's bad for anyone who's running experiments, right? If there's a little box that we use to inform people about things and people misuse that box, they stop being able to build good defaults. Essentially, you can prevent people from devaluing your component because if a component surfaces irrelevant information, people learn to ignore that component. And then you have to build new components to actually communicate with people. And that is really, really important because you don't want to have to rebuild components. Yeah, and I like as well, like the system you're talking about, it's not just a design system, but it's like a user experience system as well and the natural flows that need to happen uh, and expected behaviors. So sending a standard practice on what teams can and can't do with user behaviors as well is really interesting. And limiting them, but also limiting them in a good way that allows them then to run experiments freely, not knowingly that they're not going to destroy the end user experience or damage the brand like you said before as well. Mm-hmm. Next thing I want to ask actually, because I see we're running up on time, a question that I ask every person that joins the show. And let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company Mm-hmm. And after joining this company, you see that churn and retention is not doing well at all. And the CEO comes to you and asks you to try and lead things and turn things around for them. But they're looking for results really quick. They want to see a dent in the first 90 days. What would you want to be doing with your time in those first 90 days to try to turn things around for the company for churn and retention? Mm. Yeah. Number one, I'd be asking about what data we already have. A lot of times when you have a retention issue, it sometimes points to an organizational issue where there are people who have been raising the flag forever about certain issues and those just aren't getting traction. And oftentimes it's just about making sure that you gather the right information and hear what's there. I think the other thing you can do is you can look at who is successfully retaining and why. Depending on what stage your business is in, that may be not necessarily a useful cohort. Effectively, I think I would start talking to customers. I would look at people who have tried recently churned out, understand um, what's going on. You could probably start reaching out to churn customers is hard because typically they don't want to re-engage with you, but it's worth a try. I think you can also, if you have a paid service, for example, a subscription that people are canceling, you can start doing qualitative data in the cancellation flow and just start to pay a lot of attention there. And you might be able to recruit participants as well from that. Let's see what else. It really depends on it really depends on what you do uh, as a business. It could be so different. Yeah, um, the strategies can change quite a lot. So what you're saying now is all well, having exit flow uh, data. There would be if someone's going to cancel, asking the reason for cancel, and really trying to quantify uh, and qualify like the reasons. Uh, was that the main thing there? 
Yeah, I think you really want to understand why. Is it is it because your thing is too hard to use? Is it a usability issue or is it actually primarily a value issue? And if it is actually, if it's a usability issue, then you know where you need to spend your time. Like you just need to focus on the quality of that. And that might mean like engineering investment. It might mean UI changes. On the other hand, if your product value is just simply not, you know, what it is that people, like people come for something but what they come for may not be what you deliver. And so understanding what is the delta between the value, the perceived value that people were initially attracted to versus what you capably delivered is important. I think especially if you're in the early stages, you can get adoption, but people are, if you have one, one hard and fast notion of what your business is for, you might actually discover that people are trying to use it for something else. And that might actually be where you need to pivot towards because the need you thought wasn't actually there. Yeah, it's making sure that you're constantly iterating and paying attention to those signals. Cool. So maybe last question as well for today. What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started first on trying to tackle the problem? Like what is a perception that's changed in your mind completely from the beginning till today? That is a great question. I think... What grew stronger was my understanding of the value of building a habit. When we talk about activation, I think sometimes people miss that like activation is about a long-term set of engagement that you're jumpstarting. And like engagement is something that is not just about having one really great reason to come to your product or service, but actually having multiple because use cases change over time, right? Like life changes, people change. And if you only have one use case, that can be incredibly fragile because that use case might go away. And so having multiple use cases that you're able to build habits around, that is what gives you staying power. I think the other thing is recognize the competitive landscape, right? My uncle, for example, has done a lot of uh, research on happiness and he gives a really great example of when you have your first car, ever (laughs) maybe the maybe what you can afford is like a used honda you're so proud of it because it's yours and you got it now if the second car you got was a used honda you would not encounter the same amount of happiness and when you think about that with regards to products and services one is even just your product alone you have to continue to impress people and evolve and deliver value because what is impressive initially will age. And then, and and we know those services that haven't changed and we know how we feel about them because we're users of those services. So don't be that service, right? Think about that, plan intentionally for that. And then the second thing is the competitive landscape changes, right? When a BlackBerry was really cool until an iPhone came on the market and then you were like, a BlackBerry what, who? And like, making sure that you understand how am I doing relative to the competition? What are my, what's my differentiator, delighter? What is the thing that like I have to come here for that I can only get here, that can only get, cannot get anywhere else. Like that value is relative and it's not absolute. And so if you pat yourself on the back for absolute value, like you will miss the boat. You might get it initially. You might get that activation. And then over years, you'll start to see that you're, 20% 20% target year over year is getting harder and harder to get. 
Yeah, I, I love both of those points as well. I think like the use cases specifically, like a person who signs up to your service today has a specific problem, like you manage to solve that. Uh, once you solve that, they have new problems. If you're able to transition them into new use cases and solve them as they grow in sophistication as well, I think that's an amazing way, not in sophistication, but just in different needs is an excellent way to keep them engaged and keep them happy. But it's really funny that you mentioned the example of the car because literally probably three, four days ago, I left my house and as I was driving in, in my car now, like a car passed me that was my the first car that I had when I first had a car. Mm-hmm. And I literally thought about that experience was like, because it was a young person driving the car. And I was thinking like, I remember the first time I got that car, like how proud I was, how I felt about it. And then today, if I had to have the same car, probably wouldn't <laughs> feel the same. Like, so it's literally just you described my morning like three, four days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So yeah, I, th- I think we run up now on time, Angel, but I really, really appreciate it. It's been an excellent chatting to you. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Anything they should be aware of or how can they keep up to speed with what you're working on? Yeah, I think follow me on LinkedIn, I think is probably the most accurate way to stay up to date. I write a little bit, have some stuff in the works. Definitely, if, if you want to join us for Reforge, I'm a guest speaker in the fall. And yeah, I think other words of advice that I'll I'll just offer is just always remember that it's about customer value. And so what you're, whatever you're trying to measure, look for making sure that you're measuring that people are getting the value they came for 100%. And then hopefully maybe a little bit more, maybe like, I think sometimes human beings, our aspirations, our articulated aspirations are significantly smaller than what our real aspirations are. And sometimes if you can really understand customer mindset and get to the real aspiration behind the stated aspiration, that's where you really start to have people strongly emotionally connect with what you do. And that that connection, it doesn't 100% save your business, but what you can do if people feel understood and recognized and valued in the customer relationship is you buy people's patience and you buy their forgiveness um, because you've earned it. And I think that's really important when we're trying to learn and develop and build things is like having that relationship where people are willing to be part of that journey with you because they're happy um, and they're rooting for you because they feel like their success is tied to your success. That's a really good place to be. And I think people don't understand that or don't think about that nearly as much as they should. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic way to end uh, the show today. So thanks so much for joining Angel. Wish you best of luck now in the new role at Facebook and uh, hope to hear from some of the stuff that you mentioned you'll be sharing as well. We'll definitely be picking up and reading uh, whatever you bring out. So thanks a lot for joining. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew 
at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.